some ways, this may be the most important passage and the most important message of all. So, for the substance of our message this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, where Jesus describes an accountability process between the members of a local church that has through the years come to be known as church discipline. So I'll be using the term church discipline today to refer to everything that Jesus is describing here in Matthew 15 or 18, 15 through 18. So let's read it together and then let's pray for the Lord's help. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Father, I pray now that you would help us to think clearly, to think honestly, to think biblically, most of all. God, help us to understand and agree with what you say today. Help us be willing to put it into practice in our own lives and in our own church. God, now I just am reminded that probably right at this moment as well, Charles is at Auburn Baptist Church standing up to preach as well. So we lift him up and pray the same thing, that your people at that church would hear your word and agree with what it says and be willing to put it into practice in their lives. So make that true for them and for us today. pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is what Jesus is saying in these verses important? Why is it willing that we should be willing, or why is it important that we should be willing to, when necessary, remove someone from membership in the church? Well, I'll give you a few reasons. The latest edition of Operation World, which is a prayer book that gives lots of statistics on churches and Christians all over the world, the latest edition of that book says that approximately one-third of the population of the United States is affiliated with a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. One out of every three people in this country is a member or regular attender of a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church. Yet somehow, on my block with 25 or 30 homes, I can't find another Christian who is a member in a Bible-believing church, or at least one who actually attends and lives like it. One out of three are members, but you can't find Christians as you just walk down your street in most areas. This morning, about five million people, including visitors, will gather for Sunday services in Southern Baptist churches. And in those same Southern Baptist churches, there are actually close to 16 million people on the membership rolls, not including visitors. So that means 11 to 12 million members of Southern Baptist churches are nowhere to be found on a given 
Sunday. In the fall of 2002, to make it a little bit more personal, Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church listed 317 members on its rolls. And we would average 85 or 90 in attendance on an average Sunday. Something is wrong, isn't there? When church rolls across the board are filled with people who never show any interest in the church or in the gospel. Something is definitely wrong. The question is, why do so many so-called believers, so many church members, have no connection at all with the life of the church and seemingly no evidence at all of the life of Christ living within them? Numerous problems that create this predicament. One of the problems is that we have a defective view of how one becomes a Christian. So as long as someone signs a card or prays a prayer, they're a member of the church right then. We also have an inadequate view of what a true Christian looks like, what a church member looks like, so that we don't expect people to live like the Bible says that we should live, and therefore we have a very low standard and very broad membership. Maybe the biggest problem, or one of the biggest problems, is that there's a great void when it comes to correction of and care for people who are actually on church membership roles. You can be a member of a church and never have anyone question you about the way that you live. And something is wrong with that if what Jesus is saying is true, and it is. So in short, one of the reasons why churches are in the predicament that they are in is because in the last century we have almost completely ignored what Jesus is saying in this passage in Matthew 18. We have almost completely given up on holding one another accountable to live like Christians. Our problem then is not merely dishonesty about our membership, but disobedience to our Master. He said it, and we aren't doing it. Furthermore, we've allowed millions of people, and locally dozens of people, who give no evidence of the new birth at all to salve their guilty consciences by reminding themselves that their names are on a church roll somewhere. They think they're going to heaven because their name is on a roll, whether they ever live like Jesus taught us to live, whether there's any evidence of faith or not. And that's criminal for us to do that to people. So the biblical evidence, what Jesus is saying here, coupled with the dreadful realities of church life in America, by and large, compels me to say this morning that there's a great need for us to think about and to recover church discipline as Jesus describes it here in Matthew 18. So that's the need for church discipline. I hope that it's clear that we need to hold one another accountable. We need to know who's in and who's out so that we might effectively minister to both. If the need of church discipline is clear, then I think the process of church discipline is even clearer because we have it very succinctly described for us here in these four verses. Jesus makes it plain what we are to do. If your brother sins, this is what should be done, verses 15 through 18. So let's, as we think about this process, let's just walk through these verses and let's begin by asking the question, when should the process of accountability with one another, or when should the process of church discipline actually begin? When do we begin this process of holding another person accountable for the way that they're living? Well, Jesus is clear on this too, isn't he? In verse 15, he says, if your brother sins, you should go to him. So the process of church members holding one another accountable begins anytime one of us sins. And I'll just point out to you that Jesus didn't say if your brother commits 
a really big sin like adultery, then you should go to him. He simply says, if your brother sins, if your brother lies, you should go to him. If your brother gossips, you should go to him. If your brother looks at a woman lustfully, you should go to him and talk to him about that and help him to overcome that sin. So in a very real sense, Matthew 18, 15 should be happening all the time, every day in the life of a healthy church because God's people are sinners, aren't they? We sin all the time, every day, and therefore we ought to be helping one another all the time, every day. We should be constantly helping one another overcome our besetting sins. We should be constantly praying for one another about our sins. We should constantly be encouraging one another through to get through our sins, and when necessary, we should be constantly lovingly correcting one another about our sins. And just as an aside, since we've been talking about church membership, we'll never do this. We'll never be constantly helping one another overcome sin unless we're constantly together. You will not know one another well enough to recognize, much less correct, deficiencies in each other's lives unless unless you have genuine relationships where you're together a lot. Furthermore, people aren't going to be very likely to receive correction from you if they're not with you a lot. Human nature is not to receive correction but to shun it. So if you're a near stranger to people in your local church, you can't be a part of this process very effectively. But if we know one another well, then we are comfortable enough with each other, we know each other well enough to proceed. If we love someone, we will want to help them where they struggle most. That's what Jesus is all about here. He's about tough love. But love, nonetheless. If we love someone, we'll want to help them where they struggle the most. And that means church discipline, accountability, should be happening all the time because we love one another. Now, the process doesn't always happen as smoothly and as happily as we might like, does it? There are times when you speak to someone about something that they said or did or are involved in and they don't respond like you might hope a Christian would. There are times when people refuse to repent, they refuse to receive correction. And Jesus knew that would happen. So he didn't just stop with, if your brother sins, go to him. But he put in place a very practical, very clear, I think, four-step process for dealing with the inevitable sin that will arise in one another's lives. Four steps. Let's just walk through them together briefly. Step one, if your brother sins, verse 15, go and show him his fault in private. The first thing you are to do when you see a brother or sister in Christ stumbling is to go. You're not to expect them to come to you confessing all. You are to go to them. They're not going to come to you, probably. Human nature tends to conceal sin, not to run and admit sin. So Jesus says, if your brother is in need of help, you go to him. If healing is going to happen, if repentance is going to happen, someone has to be bold enough and loving enough to go and speak to that person about the problem. What are you to do when you go? Well, you are to show him his fault. Not to go to criticize You're not to go to browbeat the person. You're simply to go to point out to him some areas of his life that he may not even realize are out of line with the Scriptures. You're doing so just like a dentist 
shines a light into your face and into your mouth so that cavities that you didn't know you had could be revealed. That's what we are to do for one another. We are to come with the light of God's Word shining into one another's lives so that things about our own individual lives that we never realized will come to light so that we can deal with them. See, the dentist doesn't shine a light on your cavity so he can make fun of you or so he can say, get out of my office. He does it so he can help you, right? And that's what we do to one another. We shine the light of God's Word so that we can help, so that we can fill the cavities of the soul that we ourselves may not even realize are there. So we need Christian friends to go and then to show. We need them to come with a flashlight, not a club, but a flashlight of God's Word and help us see our faults. So we're to go, we're to show, and we're to do both things in private, he says. Your version may say, just between the two of you. If a brother's sinning, the first thing you don't need to do is come and tell me about it. Or come and tell one of the deacons about it. So if your sister in Christ is spreading gossip, you don't come and tell the pastor. You don't begin to gossip yourself by telling all the people in your Sunday school class. You come, or you go, to her. Not to anyone else. You go to her in private and speak to your sister directly and to your sister alone directly. And in most cases, if you're willing to do this, she'll listen to you. That's the great thing about it. Most of the time, you never have to get past step one. Because if someone's genuinely a Christian and you come to them and you say, you know, the thing that you're doing, here's what the Bible says about it, and I'm not sure why you're doing what you're doing um, when the Bible says you should be doing something else. Most of the time, they'll listen to you. The first time. And they will thank you for being honest enough with them to help them see cavities that they could not see themselves. And it will be well worth the butterflies that you feel when you're on your way to their house. How are they going to react? It will be worth that if they're restored to the Lord and to His church. So you go, you show, and you do so in private. That's step one. But the question then comes, what do you do if you go... And she slams the door in your face. What do you do if you show and she refuses to admit that she's wrong? What if you do this in private and this person gets really angry and makes it a public issue? What do you do then? Well, then you go to step two. Step one, you go and show in private. Step two, if he does not listen to you, verse 16, take one or two more with you. So step one doesn't work. You take one or two fellow church members. Probably at this point it would be helpful to get the pastor or one of the other men who's a leader in the church and maybe then another person who knows this person well and who can talk to them lovingly and calmly and go to her again and repeat step one. So this time you take you and two, one or two others and you go again and you show again and you do it all in private again. And again, the goal is to help this person see his or her sin, not to beat them up. Now, the question then is, why do we need to do it again with one or two other people? Well, Jesus tells us, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. First of all, having other people involved with you in correcting someone who's in sin 
ensures that the correction is not simply your nitpickiness. So if you go to someone and say, we really need to talk to so-and-so about that, and one or two other people say, that's not a sin, then that cuts off the problem right there, doesn't it? So we want to make sure that there is a consensus that there really is a problem, that there really is a sin. But another reason why Jesus wants us to go with two or three people is that having others involved also helps pile up evidence against the guilty party. If one person comes to you and says, you know, the way that you acted the other night was really not Christ-like. If it's just one person, you might be able to blow them off and say, well, she's just being judgmental. Or he's just oversensitive. But if two or three people whom you know love you come to you and tell you the same thing, it's a lot harder to ignore that, isn't it? So Jesus is wise when he tells us, if they don't listen to one, take a couple more so that they might listen to them. So that's step two. But then again, the question, what if after step two, the guilty party still ignores the going and the showing? What if his heart hardens again the help and the, against the help and the correction of his friends? Well, then Jesus says, painfully you move to step 3 in verse 17. You go and you show by yourself. You go and you show with one or two others. If he still refuses to listen to them, he says, step 3, verse 17, tell it to the church. If in due course of time, steps 1 and 2 both fail to gain restoration and repentance, then it is our responsibility. This is not vindictiveness. This is obeying the commandment of Jesus. It is our responsibility at a gathered meeting of the church to publicly correct the guilty party and plead for their repentance. That's our duty to Christ. If a brother or sister is in sin and they refuse to receive correction from one, refuse to receive it from two or three, that the whole church is to plead with them together about this sin. Now, usually... The person who's under discipline knows what day that's going to happen and conveniently doesn't come that day. Or they have a, a doctor's appointment on a Sunday morning that day or something of that nature. If that's the case, and the whole church cannot plead with them at that moment that day, then it's the whole church's responsibility to bombard that person with phone calls and visits and notes pleading with them to put aside their sin and return to good standing with the Lord and with His church. It's our responsibility to do that together. A day like that is a sad day. It's not a happy day. It's not a day for rejoicing. We finally get to make this person's sin public. Everybody can know how bad she's been acting. No, it's a day of great disappointment and regret. And we don't ever want to get to this point. It's a drastic measure that must be taken. It's not a happy measure. It's a measure designed by love it's a measure designed with restoration, but it is not a happy day. And again, the goal of telling it to the church is not embarrassment. It's not ridicule. The reason why we do this is because we want now to pile up even more evidence against this person in hopes that such a loud alarm will finally awaken the sinning member to his or her sin. The goal is that if 50 or 75 or 100 people are all saying, you've got to recognize your sin, that they won't be able to ignore that. That's the goal. 
Sadly, even after step three, some people refuse to admit their sin and refuse to repent. So what do you do then if even public censure by the entire church doesn't bring repentance and doesn't bring restoration? Well, then you move finally and regretfully to step four. Step four, Jesus says in the second half of verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, if the person, the guilty person, even when publicly disciplined by the church, fails to listen, then you are to treat him or treat her as though they were not a Christian. That's what he means by treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. I'll say that again. If the person who is guilty refuses even to listen when publicly disciplined by the church, you are to treat him or treat her as though they were not a Christian. That means most clearly that all their membership privileges are immediately revoked. Anything that they served on, anything that they participated in, their access to the Lord's Supper, their right to vote, all that is immediately at that point revoked if they are no longer treated as a Christian because only true Christians are to be members of true churches. Paul goes on to say this about what it means to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. We read this a few weeks ago. If anyone doesn't listen to what we say meaning what the Bible is teaching, he says, do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. If someone ever has to be excommunicated from a church, then that church, according to the scripture, is not to go on treating them as a Christian and they are not to have friendly, normal associations with him her. We'll go on in a moment to talk about what that means, but suffice it to say that if a person is excommunicated from the church, that we are to treat them with special caution and special sternness. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't love that person, or that we are free to speak evil toward them if we see them or about them. That's not what he's saying here. After all, Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors, didn't he? You read the Gospels. These are the people that he was concentrating on the most. He preached the Gospel to them. He longed that they would repent and believe and be forgiven by God. He did them good. And that means we must do the same with these people. We must long for their salvation. We must long to speak the Gospel to them. We must long to do them good. So on the one hand, we're not to associate with them. We're not to pretend like everything's okay. But on the other hand, we're not to completely isolate them and treat them as though Jesus may not save them as well, as though we're more special than they are. So there's a delicate balance to be maintained with a person like this. We don't ignore them when we see them in the supermarket, but we speak to them kindly and lovingly. By the same token, when we see them in the supermarket, we don't pretend that everything's okay. We don't just have chit-chat with them and ignore the problems that exist. Rather, we're always, if we see them, urging them to be reconciled to the Lord and to His church. So if there is someone like this, when we converse with them, it should always be around the things of the Lord and making sure that we are seeking reconciliation with them. Similarly, we don't forbid a person that has been excommunicated from the church from attending our services. 
The Sunday gathering is where we want Gentiles and tax collectors to be, isn't it? We want them to be here to hear the gospel. So we're not saying you can't ever come in our services again. But if they do come in our services, we're not treating them as though they were still members of the church. Our position has to be one of love, but one of tough love. We have to love them, but we have to treat them as though they weren't Christians and as though there was a problem, which there is. So step one, go and show by yourself in private. If step one doesn't work, go and show with one or two others in private. If step two doesn't work, then tell it to the church and let the whole church plead with this person to repent. And if that doesn't work, then treat them as though they were no longer a Christian. Now, the question is, what are we trying to achieve with all this? What Jesus is telling us to do is clear, but what's the goal of church discipline? The short answer is, and I hope you're seeing this already, restoration. That's the goal. That's what Jesus is aiming at in verse 15, that we might win our brother back to the Lord and back to right fellowship with his church. So we want, by increasingly drastic measures, if necessary, to wake the sinner up so that he will get right with the Lord and right with his church. The goal is never, let's get rid of the troublemakers. Then everything will be fine here. The goal is not, let's clear the roles. Both of those things may sometimes be the end result when you begin this process, but that is not the goal. It never has been and it never will be. The goal is always healing and forgiveness. And for some who are playing church, the goal is that they would genuinely be saved. And we see that this is the goal painted very beautifully in the passages that surround Matthew 18, 15 through 18. This whole passage, or this whole chapter, is about restoration. So if we weren't sure that Jesus means restoration in these four verses, we can just look at the rest of the chapter. Look first at the verses that lead into this morning's passage. Look at Matthew 18, 12 through 14. What do you think, Jesus says, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. You hear the tone of that? God's purpose is to bring wayward sheep back into the fold. And that should be our purpose, even when we have to deal harshly with them. And when we succeed, there should be great, great rejoicing. And scan down to the verses that immediately follow this morning's passage, beginning in verse 21. And I'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. It's a famous story that Jesus told about forgiveness and reconciliation. Peter came and said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? I thought he was being pious. I'll forgive my brother seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. 
So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which is much less, much, much less than what he owed, and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. We've been forgiven much, haven't we? And it is God's purpose that we who have been forgiven so much would learn how to forgive. That's what church discipline is all about. Church discipline is like a big science project where we get to practically learn how to forgive people. If you're going to be involved with people at all, you're going to have to learn how to forgive, aren't you? The church is an experiment in forgiveness. So I say to you again, the ultimate goal of church discipline is never to get people out, but always to bring people back in to the glory of God. So there's a need for church discipline. There's a very clear process for church discipline. There's a great purpose for church discipline, namely restoration. Next, I want to just think for a moment about the seriousness of church discipline. The seriousness of accountability within the church. If the people don't come back in, if they have to be removed from church membership, there are dire consequences for them, according to verse 18. In verse 18, Jesus says this about the church and its disciplinary decisions. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, where church discipline is practiced correctly, where the verses 15, 16, and 17 are done correctly, the church's membership roles, those who are bound to the church, the church's membership roles are a fairly accurate reflection of heaven's membership roles. Whatever a church that obeys these verses binds on earth has already been bound in heaven. And anyone whom a church that practices these verses looses on earth is already loosed in heaven. So in a church that practices these verses faithfully, a person who remains bound to the church, a person who remains in good standing with the church, can have a great hope that they have already been bound to the church of God, which is in heaven. The fact that we can be members in good standing of a faithful, discipline-practicing church is a great aid to our assurance of salvation. 
those who are cut loose from a church who is faithfully practicing these verses can be sure that they've already been cut loose from the membership roles in heaven. The church is trying to be faithful to these verses. God is not going to let them really mess it up and kick somebody out who is a godly person. So again, if we can summarize verse 18, what he's saying is where this church discipline is practiced correctly, the membership role of the church is a really good idea of the membership role of heaven. And that's serious business. We're going to be involved in that. If we allow unrepentant sinners to continue unchallenged as part of our church membership, we're deceiving them into believing that they are Christians, when in fact they probably aren't. And as I said before, that is criminal. And it's serious for the individual, too, because if an individual is ever excommunicated from a church that's following the procedures of Matthew 18, then they're in bigger trouble than they might think. If a church practicing these verses faithfully excommunicates you, then it doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It doesn't matter if you think that you're a Christian or if you know that you did this or did that. Verse 18 is clear. If a church like this cuts you loose, then you're cut loose. It doesn't matter if another church church accepts you into their membership ignoring the problems that you had with your previous church. If a church like this cuts you loose, you are cut loose in heaven, Jesus said. So if this happens to you, the thing to do is not to slink into some more accepting church and salve your conscience that way. If this happens to you, the thing to do is to wake up, to repent of your sins, and to trust in the sacrificial death of Jesus to forgive you once and for all so that you will no longer be loosed from the church that is in heaven. Let me just pause here and say that as bad as it would be if someone got to this point, as bad as sin is, as bad as your sin is and my sin is, the grace of God offered to us through the death of Jesus is greater, isn't it? There is no sin... Even the sin of a hard heart that gets you removed from a church, there is no sin for which God's grace cannot bring a remedy. So we can rejoice in that for ourselves and for others. So, I want to ask a final question, try to answer it, and then we're done. It's an important question, and that is, does church discipline work? If a church does this faithfully with all of its members, does it really work? The obvious answer is, of course it works, or it wouldn't be in the Bible, right? Of course this works. Of course Jesus meant for it to work. But I want to conclude by telling you a story of how Matthew 18, 15-17 worked beautifully at our church in Mississippi. I tell this story because I'm well aware that many of you may have friends or family members who are on our church roll right now and whom we never see. And you are deathly afraid of what's going to happen if they get removed from the church roll. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Only good things. Because God's Word is faithful and it works. If the person is genuinely a Christian, they'll come back under these circumstances. 
And if they are not, then maybe, just maybe, steps three and four will finally be the smoke alarm that wakes them up and saves them from hell. So again, close with a church discipline story from our church in Mississippi from the life of my friend named Arthur. Arthur was a young man um, who lived in the neighborhood around our church uh, who was a very new believer uh, when we came there and who started attending our church. Um, I began to meet weekly with him for one-on-one Bible study, um, helping him to learn just basic things in the scriptures because he never really read them before. We began to get to know each other's families and spend time together outside of church and Bible study settings. And Arthur became, uh, without question, my best friend in our church in Mississippi. He was there for several months, and I picked him up each Sunday to come to church. And one Sunday on the way to church, uh, I went in his house, and his girlfriend was in his house Sunday morning before church. It's a little bit strange. Arthur, she come over this morning to go to church? No, she's not going to church. Get in the car. Arthur, what's she doing at your house in the morning time like this if she didn't come to go to church with you? Well, she moved in. Oh, she moved in. Yeah. Do you think that's the right thing, Arthur? Well, I mean, she needs a place to stay, and so I had a place, an extra room, and nothing's going on. I said, Arthur. Whether anything is going on or not is between you and God, but it's not right for you to be living with a woman who's not your wife. Your neighbors don't know if anything's going on. And I said, let me tell you, if you live in the same house with a woman, something's going to go on. So you can't do this, Arthur. He said, yeah, I know, you're probably right. I said, well, let's get it straight. I said, if we need to help her find a place, we'll do that. If we need to help her pay the first month's rent, we'll do that. We've got to get this right, right away. He said, okay. I went to church, a couple weeks went by, nothing happened, no changes. So he and she were at church um, two Sundays later, and I and another member of the church now went to them for step two. Step one was in my car, step two was now I and another member of the church. We said the same things to him. Arthur, this isn't right, you can't continue like this. He said, yeah, I know, we've got to fix this. She said, she wasn't a Christian, but she said, yeah, we, we can't live like this. So I said, okay. Then by such and such a date, which I think was three Sundays later, I said, this is all going to be squared away by such and such a date, or we're going to have to go to step three. And I read him Matthew 18, 15 through 17, and I explained to him that we were going to have to share what was going on, not in gross detail, but that we were going to have to share this with the church. And I said, and Arthur, if you don't listen to the church, we're going to have to treat you as Jesus says, like a Gentile and a tax collector. That means that you'll lose your church membership privileges. And with uh, his uh, Mississippi accent that you can't understand unless you live there and are from there, he said, Pastor Court, you're going to treat me like a tax collector? And I said, Arthur, if that's what it takes to wake you up, that's what's going to happen. So we made the agreement. We had the date set. The Sunday came. I went by to pick him up, no answer at his door. We went to church, and I said something like this to our congregation. Some of you may know that uh, Arthur is involved in some behavior that uh, the church and the Bible cannot condone. Uh, He and I have spoken about it. He and I and another member of our church have spoken about it. Uh, He's refused uh, to repent and refused to be restored to the church. So today we regretfully are going to have to publicly 
censor him. I said that doesn't mean that you ignore him. It doesn't mean that you treat him rudely. It means that you love him. Because after all, Jesus loves Gentiles and tax collectors. But it means that he cannot continue going on in his privileges in our church. And I want you all to find him and pray for him and call him and talk to him and urge him to repent. And that was the end of that. And we went on with our service. It was a hard, hard day. It was a hard week following. And next Sunday, we got to church and we're getting ready to start the service. And about five minutes to 11, Arthur came in the door to the church with a big smile on his face. And he came up to me and he said, we got it right. I found her a place to live and it was wrong. And I want to confess to the church. I want to publicly confess. I want to ask the church's forgiveness. I've asked the Lord's forgiveness. And I want to be restored. And so he stood in front of the church gathering. And he confessed what he had been doing. He confessed why it was wrong. And he confessed that he repented. And he asked for our forgiveness. I want to tell you that Arthur's repentance and his restoration that day was followed by loud applause. And by many hugs and by many tears. Because Arthur was home again. And he was right with God again. I tell you that story because by the grace of God, the same thing will happen for some of your loved ones. If we love them enough to obey Matthew 18. Jesus said, For I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So for our joy, let's obey Matthew 18. Father, I thank you that you rejoice in repentant sinners. Whether they are sinners who are repenting of their sins and coming to Christ for the first time, or whether they are people who have believed and who have been saved but who have gotten astray of the way. God, I thank you that you've given us explicit instructions with how to lovingly encourage and exhort and correct one another. And I pray that you would make us bold enough and obedient enough to do so. In step one, all the time, and all the way to steps two, three, and four, when it's necessary. Make us faithful, Lord, and let us rejoice. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we come to the fifth message of a five-part series on local church membership. And in some ways, this may be the most important passage and the most important 